I want to speak for the topic, getting out of Jerusalem, getting out of Jerusalem. And in light of what has been happening in our nation, we need to think about what is the responsibility of the church? What is the responsibility of the church, the body of Christ, the, the, the fellowship of the spirit, the people of God? What is our responsibility in light of what's been going on in our nation? And as I'm 54 years old now, and I have undergone an evolution in my thinking and in my experience, and I think the church needs to undergo an evolution in its thinking and its understanding. Uh, I came from a religious background. My father was chairman of the deacon board for over 25 years, not because he wanted to hold on to power, but because he carried himself in a Christian manner. And people gave him authority. And growing up, I saw that my father didn't force himself on folk, but he lived his life in such a way that he gained authority to speak. And that's the context I grew up in. My mother was the uh, minister of music at our church, and my brother followed her as minister of music at the church. And my sister, we sang in the choir, and I was involved in, in the various activities of the church. So I was molded and shaped in the context of the church. Specifically, I was raised in the black church tradition. The black church tradition, which reminded me that it was okay to be black and Christian. Because it gave me a sense of identity, and it gave me a sense of self-esteem. I was also molded and shaped by the civil rights movement and, and Martin Luther King Jr. and the struggle for justice and equality in this country. I was also influenced by the black power movement and Malcolm X. <laughs> Although I didn't embrace everything <laughs> that that stands for, but... I was in, influenced by the critique that, that the black power movement made of the situation in America at that time. And I was also influenced by Billy Graham. So there's a variety of experiences that are on my life. And I was raised in a largely black neighborhood, Coatesville, Pennsylvania. For Coatesville, we got Coatesville people here? All right, all right. I was raised in Coatesville, Pennsylvania, on a street called Coat Street. Coat Street, largely black, but there was an Italian woman who owned a store. An Italian woman, her name was Mary, and her sister Rosie. And I thought about that growing up. It's like, wow, you know, they're white, and it's a largely black community. You know, what's going on here? But you know what I learned? That Mary and Rosie didn't just come into the community and make money because they were store owners. They didn't just come into the community and made money and left. They established relationships with the community. And so Mary and Rosie knew my name. Mary and Rosie knew when I graduated from high school. Mary and Rosie always talked about and inquired about how I was doing. And they knew everybody in the neighborhood. These two Italian women, they knew everybody in the neighborhood because they established a relationship. They, didn't, they knew me by name. They knew my dad. They knew my mother. They took the time and probably the risk to get to know folk in the neighborhood. They weren't afraid of us. They established relationship with us. And when my father, who was a steel worker, he worked at Luke and Steel, 
when they went on strike and my father was hard-pressed to have money to, to feed us. Mary extended credit to my father so that my father could feed us. That's the kind of relationship that we need. And when Mary passed away and Rosie passed away, we were all sad. We were all sad because why? They had taken the time and took the risk of learning who we were. And when we cried, they cried. When we rejoiced, they rejoiced. That's the kind of neighborhood that I grew up in. I moved from Coast Street and we moved to Graham Avenue. And I had an interesting experience because Graham Avenue, Coastal was all black, Graham Avenue was white. And so my godfather lived up there. And when we moved in there, we were the other black family that moved on to the street. And uh, I'll never forget, I made friends because I'm a friendly guy. I made friends with my white neighbors. And we used to play football in the street, you know. And you know, I'm 6'5", so I can always... And we had fun. <laughs> and we interacted with one another. Because I was raised to respect everybody. I was raised to love everybody. I was raised to make sure that you love your enemies. That's the ethic that was a part of my upbringing. But I'll never forget, I went into, and I'm not going to mention the name, I'll just say Smith. I went into the Smith house to because my friend had to do something. And I waited for my friend to come back. And uh, his mother looked out the window. And she said, well, I guess I can't say it here, what she said. But she said, blankety blank blacks. And I'm like 13, 14 years old. I'm like, and then she spun and she looked at me and she said, not you, Nate. I'm like, well, <laughs> you just made a statement about black people and then you turned to me and you said, not me, Nate. And it's interesting, all those years I've come into that house, all those years I've played with her sons, not knowing that that is the real way she felt about me. I was educated in the coastal school system. After I graduated from the coastal school system, went to Eastern University. Yeah! <laughs> Graduated with a bachelor's degree in sociology and a minor in religion. And after that, I went to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Wow. <laughs> I stayed there and, and I came back. I stayed there for a little while. Came back to, to Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now Palmer Theological Seminary. Hey, I got a few there. All right, all right, all right. And so these are experiences that, that have molded and shaped me. And I came back to Eastern, and I, became, and I was an admissions counselor there. And for 15 years, I taught a course in justice. And that was always interesting because you always had students who came in and thought they knew the Word of God, and they would always challenge you. Come on, Reverend, I got you. <laughs> but we always had discussions because justice always talked about issues of race and gender and class and environment and poverty and all these kinds of things. And, and it was an experience that uh, not only enhanced me, but I hope I communicate something to the students too. In my evolution again, I realized that color did mean something. I know a lot of times we want to say color doesn't mean anything. I'm colorblind. I don't see color. Like right now, the lights are so bright I don't see you. <laughs> but 
color does mean something. It shouldn't mean anything, but unfortunately it does. And it's interesting because as we dialogue together, we talk about issues of race and gender and color. We can only talk about it up to a certain point. And when we talk about it up to a certain point, we get nervous. It's like, okay, let's talk about this. Let's be sensitive about this. Let's do it up to a point. Now, after a while, let's get to the kumbaya moment and join hands. Y'all can laugh. That's all right. <laughs> but sometimes we have to do the work. And we don't do the work. We say the stuff, the right stuff, the right religious phrases, but we never engage each other as the body of Christ. We don't engage each other as a fellowship of the Spirit. We don't engage each other as the people of God. It's more than just having a personal relationship with a person of another color. It is also saying, what is the situation that keeps us divided? And so it's more than personal. Sometimes it's structural. Let me give you an example. One day I was watching Nightline. You guys watch Nightline? Nobody watches Nightline? I guess everybody's in bed. (laughs) But in 1987, there was an episode of Nightline with Ted Koppel. You guys remember Ted Koppel? Anyone remember Ted Koppel? Ted Koppel. And um, it was 1987. And Al Campanis was the, the guest. And... They were celebrating Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in baseball. And Al Campanis was the guest on Nightline. And so I said, well, I just sat back and said, this is going to be a nice retrospective of the career of of, uh, Jackie Robinson. And so I said, okay, sit back. They did a retrospective on the life of Jackie Robinson, break down the color barrier, et cetera, et cetera. And the second half, Ted Koppel engaged Al Campanis because Al Campanis at the time was the general manager and vice president of the Los Angeles Dodgers. So, second party interview, Ted Koppel raised some questions about minority representation in baseball in the upper levels of management. And I thought Al Campanis would say something, well, you know, Ted, we're, we're working on that and we're moving forward in that. And you know what Al Campanis said? I will never forget this. I don't know what I was eating, but I dropped whatever I was eating. He said, well, Ted, why aren't there more black swimmers? Because black people aren't as buoyant as white people. I said, I, <coughs> <laughs> Did I just hear what he just said? And then he said, well, black people aren't as intelligent as white people. It's like, oh, my God, does he realize this is on national television? And uh, Ted Cobble said, we're going to go to commercial so you can dig your way out of this. <laughs> and, man, they came back from commercial, and he just kept throwing them out. <laughs> And I said to myself, wow, wow. You know, and I said, and I thought about that. It's not a personal thing because I said to myself, if I met Al Campanis personally, one-on-one, he would probably, probably be a really nice guy. He would probably give me the shirt off his back. We would probably talk about baseball and he would, we would have a good time one-on-one. But the problem is that this man was Racist. Not because he would burn a cross on my lawn, not because he would call me the N-word, but he was racist because of the attitude that he held. And that's the dangerous thing. He was prejudiced, plus he had power. You know, so if somebody came in and said, call me the N-word, people would be like, ah, ah, 
It's terrible. Ah! And you would condemn him in the name of Jesus, right? Right? <laughs> but it's harder. It's harder if somebody like an Alcampanus is shielded by a structure of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And he would be shielded because people would say, personally, Al Campanis is a nice guy. Personally, Al Campanis would probably be a nice guy. Al Campanis is sweet and he would give you the shirt off his back. Probably that's true. And you know the kicker would be? Al Campanis can't not be racist. Why? Because Al Campanis is a personal friend of Jackie Robinson. That is true. He may have been a personal friend of Jackie Robinson, but it's also true that he held opinions that were racist. And so we have to fight not against a prejudiced idea, but also the power that enhances that. That's why I think we should celebrate things like the Martin Luther King Jr. Day differently. Because usually when we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day, what do we do? We kind of come together, and basically it's an exercise in toleration, right? Y'all know it's the truth. (laughs) It's like we kind of say, because usually we have a service at my church, and, you know, the community comes out, and uh, at the end we we hold hands and we sing, I'm I'm touching the hand of this white woman, (laughs) and we're swaying back and forth, (laughs) and we're singing, we shall overcome. And I'm looking at her, and she's looking at me. And I know this will be the only time, and she's probably like, okay, 10 more minutes, and I'm out of here. No. I said, 10 more minutes, and she's out of here. And it's like, okay. And then we kind of smile at each other. But I know that I may not see her for another year. And that's bad because she is my sister in Christ. And I am her brother in Christ. And here's an opportunity to come together. If I had my way, here's how I would celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. First of all, we will not sing We Shall Overcome, or maybe one verse. (laughs) But after that, what I would do is I would say, we're going to get together, black and white, Asian and Latino, and we're going to work on a project together. Whatever it is, we're going to work on it together. You know why? Because when we work on a project together, it puts me in your face and you in my face. And when we work on something together, whether it's earning scholarships or building houses or doing evangelism together or whatever it is, the activity will bring us together. And so instead of looking at you askance and having assumptions about you, hmm, white people, (laughs) and you're looking askance at me, it's like, hmm, Hmm, six foot five black man. Is he an angry black man? What kind of black man is he? Make these assumptions because we never talk to each other, so that's what we do is assume. But if we work together on a project, you'll talk about your children. I'll talk about my children. You come to my church. I come to your church. You share your dreams and, and your sadness. I share my dreams and, and my sadness. And, and by the end of the year, I know you. You know me. We're a perpy family. We're the great big hugger. Oh, okay. Sorry. Broke out in the Barney. But you know what I'm saying. And we have kept the dream alive. Why? Because I have a better knowledge of you. You have a better knowledge of me. But we have to take the risk. The risk. The risk of being together, the risk of unity. 
How do we respond to, to racial barriers? I think the Bible gives us a blueprint. Acts, the first chapter and the eighth verse says that we need a global perspective. We don't have a global perspective. We have a narrow perspective. And Acts, the first chapter, the eighth verse says that we need a global perspective. We need to get out of Jerusalem. When I was growing up, Coatesville was my Jerusalem. I knew everything I needed to know. Did you go anywhere else? No, I got everything I needed in Jerusalem. And we need to get out of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is so comfortable. Jerusalem, we're all Jewish people in Jerusalem. The Messiah is Jewish. We got Jewish food. Why would we need to go anywhere else? Because we've been called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ means that we need to broaden our experience. Think about it. Think about the God that we serve. The God that we serve is not parochial. The God that we serve is not narrow. The God that we serve is a God that reaches beyond the comfort zone. Abraham, the father of faith. Abraham was the one that God used to say, through you, Abraham, will all the families of the world be blessed. Why? Because God is concerned about the whole world. Israel, why were you called? Why were you elected? I elected you not to sit on your election and say, hey, we're God's people. I elected you so that you would go into the world and show the world that there is a God in Israel so that the world can glorify God. I've called Israel to be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations because God is concerned about the whole world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God was in Christ reconciling the world. So if God has called us into the world, then we need to go into the world. But it's a scary place. It's easier to stay in Jerusalem. I'm comfortable here. The songs are right here and the worship is familiar here. I don't want to go over there. Can you imagine we were Abraham? God will say, Abraham, I'm going to take you to a place where I will show you. Most of us would be like, you got to show me first. Where are we going? <laughs> and we would not walk in faith. I don't know what's out there. Abraham did say, I don't know what's out there, but I know what's here. But Abraham in faith said, I don't know where you're taking me, God, but in faith, I'm going to follow you. And it was dangerous and it was risky. But Abraham left the comfort of his home to go out and engage the world and he was a blessing to the nations. I think God wants us to follow the Holy Spirit. That's what Acts the first chapter, the eighth verse is about. The book of Acts is not the Acts of the Apostles. It is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit using God's people to make the gospel something that is good news for the whole world. We don't have time for a parochial gospel because the gospel is too powerful. That's why in Acts you see the gospel breaking down barriers, breaking down gender barriers, breaking down racial barriers, breaking down class barriers because God does not want us to be divided. God wants us to be united. Amen. Amen. 
Amen. And so we have to follow the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit takes us into risky places. The Holy Spirit takes us beyond our comfort zone. The Holy Spirit takes us out of the kumbaya moment. It makes us vulnerable. It makes us open. If you want reconciliation, if you want unity, we have to do the work and take the risk. The work of reconciliation on the cross meant pain and suffering, and it cost Jesus something. If it cost Jesus to reconcile God and humanity together, if it cost Jesus, why do we think it's not costly for us? Why do we think that we can just sit back and say things as opposed to doing things that bring us together? God has called us together, and he has asked the Holy Spirit to break down those barriers so that we can come together. Think about when Jesus was baptized, after the baptism, after Jesus' baptism, would he have a party? Hey, okay, I've been baptized. Good. But I was, when I got baptized, it was like, ah, hey, celebration. But in the Bible, it says, after Jesus was baptized, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. I don't go to the wilderness. I don't know what's out there. Wild animals out there. But that's where the Holy Spirit takes us, into the places that are risky, to the places that we don't have control, to the places where we're uncomfortable. But in that vulnerability and in that uncomfortability, God molds us and shapes us so that we can be of better use to him. When I was at Eastern, there was a course I took. And it was a course that focused on women's issues. I said, okay, fine, I'm, you know, women's issues, okay. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a pretty nice guy. So I, I uh, applied for the course. And I walk into the classroom. And there was about five million women <laughs> And like two guys. And it's like, <laughs> and one guy just couldn't take it. So it was like me <laughs> in the classroom and all these women. <laughs> and they wouldn't let me off the hook. You know, it's like my friends. It's like, hi, Sally and Phyllis, how you doing? And they're like, like we were friends outside, but in the classroom. <laughs> and so I'm like, you know, I'm trying to make nice with them. And they're like, and I realized, wow, usually when I'm in a classroom, the assumption is that I have the power because the instructor is, is male. Usually who we're reading, the authors are male. In the classroom, a large percentage uh, is made up of males. But I find myself in a situation where I'm vulnerable. It's like, so it's like, if a question, shut up! <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't that bad, almost. I was sweating bullets, though. But I realized something. I put myself in a situation where I was vulnerable. I put myself in a situation that was scary for me. I put myself in a situation that was hard for me. But you know something? I put myself in a situation where I, I heard some things that I didn't hear before where I assumed I thought about certain, I thought I knew certain things, but I really didn't know them until I really stopped to listen to what these women were saying. And it's only when I put myself in a vulnerable situation that I could hear differently. And I think that's one of the keys. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit to put us in situations that are risky, that make us vulnerable. Think about the incarnation. 
God was in Christ. If I was God, if I was Jesus, I would say, okay, I will come down to earth, but make sure I have all that I need. I'd be like, I'm ready to come down to earth, but you ain't going to touch me. But Jesus came down to earth, and he made himself vulnerable. He had all power in his hand. He was a son of God. But in order to identify with our situation, in order to identify with our sin, he made himself vulnerable. And even to the point of death on the cross. Was it worth it, Jesus? Yes. Was it painful? Yes. Was it costly? Yes. But was it worth it? Yes. Because even in the difficult situations, Jesus continued to trust in God. And if we are really serious about racial reconciliation, and if we're really serious about unity, then we will take the risk, no matter how costly it is. We will take the, we'll expose ourselves to be vulnerable. And that's what I love about my friends who are not African-American. I've established relationships with people where I can be honest. I can let my hair down. Oh. Well, you know. <laughs> okay, it's a metaphor. <laughs> I can let my hair down and talk openly and honestly. Why? Because we have established a relationship. So when my friend would say something that was a little, uh, I don't accuse them of something because I have a relationship with them. And I know they misspoke out of ignorance, not out of malice. And if you don't have a relationship, then it's easy to say, hey, why did you say that? I said that because of uh, ignorance. When I was in that women's uh, study group or that women's class, I said a lot of stuff that I was corrected, not because out of malice, but because I didn't know. But I was educated because I listened and I heard what people were saying. We need to get close enough so that we can share our stories. And that's the problem. We don't share our stories. You don't know my story. You assume you know my story. I assume I know your story. But the only way that we will know each other's stories is if we create atmospheres and situations where we can listen to each other and allow the Holy Spirit to mold and shape us in such a way so that we can be God's people for sure. My experience with God is different from your experience. Not better, but it's different. And so there may be something that I'm impoverished about because I don't know your story. I want to hear your story because your story enhances my story. And my story enhances your story. And once we tell the story together, then our stories are brought together by that one big story. And that one big story is God's story where we're all God's children. Amen? But what's needed? What's needed is conversion. And people say, wait a minute, I already know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I've already been saved, and I've already accepted him as my Lord. But conversion is needed with regard to racial reconciliation and racial unity. We cannot do it like we did it in 1963. We have Twitter and all these things now. And we have an opportunity to really show unity. Remember Paul, the Apostle Paul? Not your pastor, though he's a good man. <laughs> but I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine talking with him? I am a son of Pharisees, circumcised on the eighth day, 
you know, according to the law, blameless. I mean, he could sell wolf tickets. And even though he had all these things, he still needed a conversion experience. Even though he was theologically straight and theologically sound, he needed to have an experience with Jesus. And on the Damascus Road, he had to rethink everything that he thought was right. He had to say, okay, let's see. Gee, these guys are saying that the Messiah was crucified. That's crazy. The Messiah is going to come in and whip behind. He's going to be a conquering hero. That's crazy. I got to wipe this crazy group of people out because it's foolishness. But then you encounter Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. And it's like, oh, man. So that means I got to rethink this now. It's like, okay, wait a minute, okay, Messiah, and crucified. Oh, man. So the guy that was crucified on the cross, he actually was the Messiah of Christ, of God. Oh, gosh, I got to rethink all this stuff. And then your friends would be like, wait a minute, you had it all together. What are you talking about this rethinking? Because I've encountered Jesus. And in encountering Jesus, you see things differently. And as we encounter Jesus as brothers and sisters in Christ, we see each other differently because we no longer look at each other after the flesh, as Paul says, but we look at each other after the spirit. So you're my brother, you're my sister. And that's when we can talk about the color line is is washed away by the blood of Christ because we have established a relationship and we have together come out of Jerusalem. The problem is that we are in Jerusalem and we're comfortable in Jerusalem and our worship is in Jerusalem and our tithing is in Jerusalem. Have you ever read the fifth chapter of Amos verses 18 to 24? God says through Amos that I hate your worship. It's like that. <laughs> I hate your tithes and your offerings. I hate all the religious stuff that you do on Sunday. Why? Because on Monday, you don't do the right things in the marketplace. You cannot do some things in the worship place on Sunday and then not translate it to your brother and your sister on Monday. And too often, we've been spiritual on Sunday. And it's never translated on Monday. You can't say that I love God who I have not seen and hate your brother and sister who you see every day. You can't say you have a relationship with God and you don't have a relationship with your brother and sister. And that is our challenge. A gospel that is so powerful that it takes us from Jerusalem, takes us into Judea, takes us through Samaria. What Jewish person want to go through Samaria? Samaria, there's some folk who voted for Donald Trump in Samaria. There's some folk who voted for Hillary Clinton. I ain't going through Samaria. And basically, I'll go 200 miles out of my way to avoid Samaria. But no, the gospel is so powerful, it takes us through the places we don't want to go. Jerusalem, leave. So you can go to Samaria. So you can even go to Judea, go to Samaria. And ultimately, you're fit to serve the world. Why? Because our focus is global. And so we leave Jerusalem. 
Because we've traveled together, black and white, Asian and Latino. We've traveled together, male and female, rich and poor. We've traveled together. And now here we're ready to do the work that God has called us. We're ready to have the testimony to the world that's divided by race, to the world that's divided by gender, to the world that's divided by class. But we can say, you want a demonstration model of what it means to live under the rule and the reign of God? Look at the church. Look at how they love one another. Look how they work together. Why? Because they've wrestled and struggled out of Jerusalem. And they've come to prepare themselves to serve the world. In the same way with our issues of race and racial reconciliation, we have to leave Jerusalem and take the risk to talk to that six-foot-five black guy. And I got to take the risk to talk to white people. And you got to take the risk to talk to Latino people and talk to Asian people. And once we get out of that comfort zone, we find that, ooh, it's not as bad as I thought. Ooh, you know, hey, I, went, I, I really enjoyed the fellowship. Hey. And then the Holy Spirit molds us together in such a way that we are called to serve. I believe that the church, the church has a vital a vital role to play in these turbulent times. And I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to do the work. Do the work. And it's hard work. It's risky work. But I believe that the power of the Holy Spirit can break down barriers. I believe that we're so committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ that there's no power on earth that can separate us. I believe that if we demonstrate what the kingdom of God is all about, then we can make a statement to the world and not let the world creep in and divide us, but we unify and take the risk and have fun together and misunderstand each other and, 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 and misstep. But it's okay because we're all bound together in one body in Christ, unified by, here's the powerful thing, love. Amen? Let's pray together. Almighty eternal God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you. I thank you for this opportunity to, to, to proclaim before your people. We thank you, God, that in your kingdom there's no east and west, there's no north and south. We thank you, God, that, that you are God of all people. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to, to seek your face and to be a model, a demonstration model of what the kingdom of God is all about. Lord, we ask that you would just bless our nation. And Lord, we ask that you would use your people as a, an example of what it means to come together and to be unified. Lord, you have reconciled us into yourself. Help us to not only be reconciled to you, but help us to reconcile ourselves to one another. For we trust and ask this in the mighty, matchless, and majestic name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and our Lord. Amen.